Hey folks, in lieu of another short this Monday, I've got the September news show, voted into wide circulation by the people on Patreon. And if you're like my parents, even if you are on Patreon, you should find having it as a podcast a little bit more convenient. For anybody who hasn't heard it yet, there is some news that's a bit out of date, but the whole thing in question is still up in the air, and for the most part, it's an essay, so we should be square all around. For those Patreon patrons, the November news show is out today, as usual, just a little bit late. But that show, about the disaster of a tax plan that looks set to pass, and about the total bankruptcy of the philosophy that underlies it, trickle-down or supply-side economics, is, I think, one of the best shows I've put together outside of the history episodes, so I hope you get a kick out of that. I'm headed to Michigan as of 1.30 tomorrow morning, and then on to Tennessee to see my folks, but I'm bringing my microphone with me, and I've got some stuff to cover, so December should be shaping up all right. For now, we're talking about NAFTA and trade in general. I'm John Coombs, and this is, uh, I think we settled on news for democracy. You will not be able to stay home, brother. Not be able to plug in, turn on, and cop out. You will not be able to lose yourself on Skag and skip out for beer. I have saved this one opportunity to speak briefly to you about the mindless menace of violence in America, which again stains our land. And I sometimes wonder why we Americans enjoy punishing ourselves so much with our own criticism. This is a pretty good land. I'm not saying you never had it so good, but that is a fact, isn't it? In Iraq, a dictator is building and hiding weapons, and we will not allow it. This is a different kind of war. There are no marching armies or solemn declarations. Its goal, to defeat American power. No one, no matter where he lives or what he does, can be certain who next will suffer from some senseless act of bloodshed. We condemn in the strongest possible terms this egregious display of hatred, bigotry, and violence on many sides. On many sides. There's a time when the operation of the machine becomes so odious, makes you so sick at heart, that you can't take part. You can't even passively take part. And you've got to put your bodies upon the gears and upon the wheels, upon the levers, upon all the apparatus, and you've got to make it stop. And you've got to indicate to the people who run it, to the people who own it, that unless you're free, the machine will be prevented from working at all. The revolution will put you in the driver's seat. The revolution will not be televised, will not be televised, will not be televised, will not be televised. The revolution will be no rerun, brothers. The revolution will be live. In this September news show, I want to talk to you about NAFTA. Now, that might not sound like the most topical subject for what's supposed to be a news show, but there are two reasons that I went with it. The first is that slowly, but... Well, you can't really say surely about anything in this White House. Slowly, anyway, the Trump administration has been making noises and moves towards somehow changing or reforming the North American Free Trade Agreement. It's the follow-up to torpedoing the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which he did earlier in the year, 
and which was a kind of NAFTA binding together Australia, Brunei, Canada, Chile, Japan, Malaysia, Mexico, New Zealand, Peru, Singapore, Vietnam, and until, again, earlier this year, the United States. And while it wasn't exactly on everybody's radar, we, the United States, started sitting down with the Mexicans and the Canadians over the weekend of the 24th to start hammering out a modified agreement. And the second reason that I wanted to cover NAFTA is that you get Russia and healthcare news, I'm sure, from everywhere else already. Now, what's interesting about opposition to free trade agreements is that it was the only part of Trump's platform, besides lampooning the rest of the Republican Party, that I could kind of get behind at the time. And that might strike you as strange, given that Rob Morris has pointed out during our conversations that we're both globalists. We're both committed to a more interconnected world, and even, to some extent, one which invests more power in international institutions like the UN and less in the nation-state. So how is it that I could ever be opposed to free trade, especially given that it's practically the bedrock of modern internationalism? Well, to get at it, we've got to go back and look through that Economics 101 explanation of trade and competitive advantage and why they work. If this is old hat to you, bear with me, but if it's been a while, here's a refresher. It's been a fact of the world since the very beginning that different regions are better at making and doing different things. At the most basic level, this comes down to geology and geography. We used to get all of our spices from India because they're native to the subcontinent, and they grow well there. The British sailed to India for spices and tea because although you could grow those in greenhouses in England, it's way easier and more efficient, even with that long trip, to get them elsewhere. And that's especially true if you could bring something that the Indians wanted on the journey out to exchange for those spices, like, at the time, cotton textiles or certain manufactured goods. Win-win. Now, sometimes the differences have less to do with natural resources and more to do with education or technology or the level of industrialization in one area versus another. And the simple mathematical way to look at this that many or most of you probably remember from class is called comparative advantage. What comparative advantage shows us is that even if one country in a two-country trade agreement is better at producing literally everything than the other country involved, they can and do still benefit from trade with each other. I'm going to run through this really quickly, but if you're interested at all, you're probably better off looking up a YouTube video or an article that can use visual aids, and I'll link to a couple of those on Patreon. So imagine you've got Mexico and the U.S., both of which can produce cars and computers. It takes the U.S. two hours of labor to make a computer and four to make a car, while it takes Mexico ten hours to build a PC and five to make a car. While the U.S. in this scenario can make both products more quickly than Mexico, Mexico is comparatively better at cars, while the U.S. is comparatively better at computers. And that's because when the U.S. decides to build a car with four hours of labor, it gives up the building of two PCs, since it can build a computer every two hours. Whereas when Mexico builds a car with five hours of labor, it gives up only one half of a computer, since it takes Mexico 10 hours to build one. I'll put a little hand-drawn chart I used uh, to figure out the math with the show notes too so you can see this, but the end result of all that simple math is that if the U.S. focuses on the thing it's comparatively better at, PCs, and Mexico focuses on cars, and the two countries trade the good that they're better at making with the other one, both of them can enjoy both more cars and more computers than if they tried to produce both goods without trading, in what's called autarky. 
Now, if you read newer economics texts, which I don't think anybody does, they're apt to tell you that comparative advantage doesn't seem like an excellent model anymore. There are so many countries trading, and so many different goods being traded, that imagining a country specializing in one or even a narrow range of goods is unrealistic, and it doesn't describe what we see out in the world very well. And that's true. The US or Mexico does not focus on just one product. But comparative advantage holds in the sense that it still tells us how and why trade can create more wealth than not trade, even when one country is undeniably more productive than another. The other thing I want to acknowledge before I move on is that trade doesn't have to be a binary question, free trade or no trade. Countries like South Korea have in the past used limited trade barriers to allow some of their domestic industries to reach a level of efficiency at which they could compete worldwide before lowering those barriers and entering the international market. Breaking that down a bit, so we can have a, a better example, South Korea made a conscious decision to get into technology. If they'd started on an absolutely level playing field, their tech industry would have been dead on arrival, since the international tech market was already up and running, and already offering goods at much lower prices than a brand new Korean firm, with startup costs to pay and factories to build, could ever hope to have offered. So the South Korean government raised tech tariffs, making imported technology more expensive and native-produced technology more competitive. That hurts the Korean population in general, while helping one specific industry. So it's a policy that you want to be short-lived. You want the new Korean tech industry up and running so that you can lower those barriers as soon as the price of domestically produced Korean products becomes competitive with the global market price. And once that happens, you've benefited your entire population. Because instead of exporting raw materials or sneakers or t-shirts, you've now got a high-tech industry with high-tech salaries, and those people can support any number of restaurants and travel agencies and insurance companies. And having one high-tech industry makes the next and the next easier. That careful strategy is why we get DVD players from Samsung, and we get Walmart underwear from Thailand. Anyway, despite the potential of protected infant industries, which is what that's called, what South Korea did, the fact remains that, as a rule, free trade produces more for the countries involved. And that seems to be true in the world as it is in textbooks. Donald Trump and some of his base might claim that, while the overall pie that results from any given trade agreement, like NAFTA, is bigger than the one that existed before, the share that the U.S. actually receives is smaller. But that is not the case. When trade is opened up, both countries end up with bigger portions of the pie than they had beforehand. Even the much-reviled NAFTA adds a few billion dollars worth of GDP growth per year here in the U.S. over what we would have had without it, something like 0.5% a year. What the classical graphs in the textbooks don't deal with is the way that the new, bigger piece of pie that results from trade is distributed within the countries that are involved. Because, and you'll hear economists use this phrase, free trade creates winners and losers. In our little comparative advantage example with just cars and computers, the U.S. as a whole would have been able to have both more computers and more cars than before. But all of the people who've been making cars would now be out of a job. Now, what you might already know is that NAFTA worked here just a little bit like our example. Mexico, contrary to the impression you might get from the news, produces a lot of cars, and really good ones. When my dad was building trucks in Michigan for GM, his boss sent him down to Mexico to find out how the Mexicans were building trucks that had much better fit than the trucks we were turning out in the U.S. 
Fit is something that I never notice until one of my parents points it out. But it's how well all the bits of the car, well, fit together. The gap between the doors and the frames, etc., etc. So Dad went down and looked at the trucks coming out of the body shops and off the lines in Mexico. And whereas in the U.S., he'd have one fitter, one guy, tapping on parts with a rubber mallet and moving on, car after car, in Mexico, they had 20 dudes crawling all over these truck bodies, hammering pieces perfectly into place. And the answer he brought back to his boss was basically that, well, Mexican labor is cheaper. They could put more guys on the car. And that was great for Mexico. Even though those guys were being paid orders of magnitude less than U.S. auto workers, they were making a great living for where they lived. Solid, middle-class Mexican living. And if you expand that dynamic across all of U.S. trade, the same kind of thing happens. People abroad, by selling products in the U.S. for more than they could sell them at home, can and sometimes do have better jobs than they otherwise would. And the benefit that we see here at home is that we can have cheaper cars and stereos and jeans and whatever else. So the benefits of trade, at least in the U.S., tend to be spread across the whole society, while the downsides, the car factories and denim workshops that aren't producing anymore, those are borne by much smaller subsets of the population pretty much always by the working class. So I can see where the people who liked this part of Trump's platform, a mistrust of trade agreements, I can see where they were coming from. But whereas Trump's stirred people up against free trade in general, I've got more complicated feelings. Because I do think that free trade is good for the world, and in general, I think the freer it is and the wider the area it's free across, the better. My hang-up is in the implementation. Because the unspoken agreement that should exist between a government that pursues the lowering of trade barriers and the people who exist under that government is that the state will use its redistributive powers to make sure that the gains from trade get directed, primarily, towards those people who are hurt by it. If South Korea's protected industries were a good example of a government carefully using trade to benefit its entire population, then the U.S. doing basically nothing to soften the blow for auto and other industrial workers after NAFTA was the opposite. And there are a couple of straightforward ways to imagine how we could have done differently. We could have created massive retraining programs, social programs, and community college and technical education programs, with the surpluses created by NAFTA trade to make sure that workers laid off from affected industries could retain and move into industries that had benefited. Similar slates of programs could have gone to make sure that the communities that depended on manufacturing like Pontiac and Flint and all those places in southeast Michigan and northern Ohio, didn't fall into disrepair and unemployment and cycles of poverty, which is what did happen. Another option, and ultimately I imagine there are many more than just these two, is that we could have helped domestic manufacturing to find the ways in which it could still outcompete foreign workers. This is the model they found success with in Germany. That country still has a healthy manufacturing base, but it only produces very complicated technology and quality-intensive products. So that even though German workers aren't producing all of the Volkswagens in the world anymore, they're still making the kinds of wages as industrial laborers that we said goodbye to in the U.S. decades ago. And that option was open to us too. Something you might not know is that the ex-governor of Michigan, Jennifer Granholm, implemented a concerted set of policies to try to make Michigan the cradle of battery manufacturing. Now that sounds crazy, but we knew that we were going to be moving to much larger car batteries for electric cars and for hybrids. And what Granholm did was position Michigan to take the next level up of the auto industry. Maybe you wouldn't be producing tires and transmissions anymore, 
but you'd be producing those technology-intensive essential components. It's an option that exists for us. So the problem in the U.S. isn't that we've opened up trade. That has indisputably grown the economy. The problem is that we've been determined not to protect the losers in terms of trade here at home. And in fact, the opposite has been true. With the loosening of corporate loopholes for profits made abroad and the lowering of top income tax rates, we've ensured that large corporations, the people that run them, and the folks in finance who orchestrate international deals will capture the lion's share of the gains from trade, rather than allowing or causing them to be distributed in an intentional way. And that's why, even though I am dubious about free trade agreements, Trump retooling NAFTA makes me nervous. Because we've reached a new equilibrium now, a new normal. The auto industry here is smaller, but it's healthy, and the same is true of other affected sectors of our economy. And that's even more true in Mexico, where American companies are some of the biggest drivers of their economy. And I'd assume the same for Canada, but I don't know anything about Canada. Dispatches from the ongoing NAFTA negotiations don't leave me particularly optimistic. From Canada's Globe and Mail, quote, Mexican and Canadian officials have come to the meetings well-prepared and briefed, while the U.S. negotiating team is not performing to the standards expected of them, one source said, noting that the Americans have still not provided a range of texts for the negotiations, unquote. Now, this is strange not only because they're coming unprepared to the meetings, but because in meetings like this, Usually, most of the negotiating positions have already been hashed out quietly beforehand. So not only have we not done that, we're coming to class without our homework. And not only that, but it seems as though our actual trade negotiators, who know something, anything, about economics, aren't really the negotiators. Quote, In conversations with U.S. Trade Representative Lighthizer and U.S. Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross, Canadian officials have gotten the impression that now they have a quote-unquote constituency of one, Mr. Trump, and are stuck in, quote, a position where they want to please, unquote, the president rather than negotiate on issues of substance to benefit all three countries. Quote, really nobody knows what Donald Trump wants. Does he want a deal, or does he want something that he can then turn down and say to his base, I told you these Canadians and Mexicans are untrustworthy. This is a bad deal for America, unquote, a senior advisor to Mr. Trudeau told The Globe on Saturday. Quote, they are not sure yet what he wants, unquote, and unquote. That constituency of one thing makes me antsy, because despite populist rhetoric that's come out of Trump on the campaign and in office, he and his administration have time and again followed the typical Republican Party path in continuing to make sure that the wealthiest people in the country reap the rewards of economic growth. I don't know if you've taken a look at the GOP's new tax plan, what with the garbage fire of health care going on earlier last week, but here's the Washington Post. Quote, White House officials and Republican leaders are preparing a set of broad income and corporate tax cuts, while also looking for a way to keep their plan from being a massive windfall for the wealthiest Americans, two people familiar with the plan said. Party leaders are quietly circulating proposals to lower the corporate tax rate from 35 to 20 percent, and lower the top individual income tax rate from 39.6 to 35 percent, according to people familiar with the plan. White House advisors are divided over whether to cut the top individual tax rate, and Republican leaders, aware that the plan could be construed as a huge giveaway to the wealthy, are trying to design features to the package that would ensure that the rich don't get too large of a share of the plan's tax relief, unquote. Now, since that article came out, they've released the draft of their tax plan. And in fact, it does give those tax cuts to the wealthy and to corporations. And in fact, it doesn't do anything to make it look as though the plan isn't a giant giveaway to the wealthy. Now, if all that doesn't sound like a middle-class tax cut, 
It's because it's not, and there is none in the plan. Their new system would also allow U.S.-based multinational corporations, the companies whose shareholders and executives have benefited by moving jobs abroad, to repatriate the money they've earned overseas, and they're selling it as something that will somehow benefit workers here at home. But in fact, of course, the opposite is true. And we know that because George W. Bush and his Republican Party tried the same dirty trick. From the Tax Policy Center, quote, A quote-unquote one-time repatriation holiday in 2004 taxed $300 billion of accumulated offshore profits that were repatriated to the parent firm at a preferential 5.25% rate. Backers promised the tax break would deliver jobs and investment, but instead multinationals used the repatriated funds to pay dividends to shareholders and to buy back their own stock. In fact, the largest companies in the 2004 repatriation holiday cut jobs and cut research. Once the holiday ended, multinationals went right back to accumulating earnings offshore and even stepped up their efforts, anticipating another similar tax holiday. Earlier this month, White House National Economic Council Director Gary Cohn offered a new rationale for a tax break on accumulated offshore earnings. Quoting Cohn now, The biggest public pension funds are the biggest owners of equity in the world. They're the policemen, they're the firemen, and the teachers. So yes, we're helping Americans by delivering returns back to them, unquote. But Mr. Cohn's spin is wrong. A low tax rate on foreign earnings repatriated to the parent firm will not deliver any returns to policemen, firemen, teachers, and other participants in defined benefit plans, because an increase in the value of the assets held by these plans does not increase the ultimate pension payments promised to the beneficiaries. Such a policy shift delivers a windfall to the beneficiaries of defined contribution plans, because an increase in the value of assets held by these plans increases future distributions to beneficiaries. So what he's saying there is that working people have a certain kind of pension plan, which has a fixed pension, and as long as there's money in the pot, you get exactly that fixed pension. But another kind of people have this other kind of pension plan, where if the plan itself gets bigger, which is what will happen if firms repatriate funds, those people make more money in the end. Continuing now with the article, defined contribution plans, that second kind, are held disproportionately by high-income individuals, not typical wage workers. Another large group that would benefit are foreigners, which are the next largest block of shareholders of U.S. corporations behind pension funds." Unquote. It might be hard for people in Trump's base to see, but a pseudo-religious belief in the good of absolutely free trade, and a pseudo-religious belief in the good of absolutely low taxes, come from more or less the same place. And that's the Chicago School of Economics, or more laterally, neoliberalism which has come to dominate the way that the U.S. and the institutions we pretty much control, like the IMF and the World Bank, operate internationally. I don't want to get too deeply into this because I'm not really qualified and it would be a four-hour long show, so if you're at all interested in a more fleshed-out story, The Shock Doctrine by Naomi Klein is a pretty good primer if you're starting out with this stuff. But suffice to say that the large corporate interests that the Republican Party and to some extent the Democratic Party too respond want to lower all trade barriers and all taxes everywhere and absolutely because that benefits their bottom line and it does nothing for working people. Places have tried this model out. In Chile, in the 1970s, we helped to foment a coup against the moderate socialist Salvador Allende and helped to install an authoritarian dictator, Augusto Pinochet, who we then supplied with economists and Milton loves dictators freedmen from Chicago University to help Pinochet destroy all trade barriers and eliminate almost all taxes in Chile. And for a couple of years, 
if you just looked at the Chilean GDP, just the growth of their national product, that worked great. It went up. But what ended up happening, and what is always the result of these policies, is that the Chilean upper class got extremely wealthy, the Chilean middle class disappeared, and the number of Chileans living in poverty exploded. Overnight, Chile went from a country enjoying standards of living nearly equal to those of the U.S. to one which resembled the Latin American feudalisms of more than a hundred years before. Donald Trump, for his entire life, the time he spent keeping black people out of his buildings in Jersey, the time he spent defrauding laborers and contractors who worked in and on his buildings, the time he spent running Trump University and his other out-and-out -out scams, the time he spent in the White House allowing the rich foreign and domestic to cozy up to him by paying huge sums to stay at his hotels and play at his golf courses, and above all, the time he spent in the 1990s and the 2000s making friends and doing deals with Russian oligarchs, the people who have most benefited from this kind of crony capitalism, has always, always been on the side of the rich and against the poor. The tax cuts he's right now helping to foist on the Congress disproportionately benefit not just his friends, but him personally. Future trade agreements might look different than the ones we've cut in the past. There's stuff that we now know is critical that we weren't even considering in the early 90s. Take for example that our trade agreements don't take into account the costs of carbon, so that you can buy a banana in the middle of winter for 5 cents, when the costs of the carbon released to get it to you might be $10 in hurricane damage. There is room for nuance in future trade agreements. Room to protect industries in the United States that we feel we ought to. Room for fighting climate change. Room for putting the gains of trade where they ought to go. But no matter how often this president gets in front of a screaming crowd in Alabama or Kansas, he's done nothing but lie to those people. For years now. And nothing but lie to us. To the nation. So while, yeah, I'm glad he shut down the TPP, now he's tinkering with NAFTA. And with the track record he's got so far, I wouldn't put any kind of faith in the result.